This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable. Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely and control vehicle at all times. Hi, LSPod fans, it's JR here. Burt's Babes, Hoddle's Heroes, even Decanio's Dozens. We've had some iconic lineups in our history at Swindon, just like the legendary menu at McDonald's. Parkin' or Austin, sweet curry or barbecue? Why not get a McNugget share box to enjoy the debates with your mates? And thanks to book delivery, every drop-off can be a home win. Order now on the McDonald's app and you can also get rewards points too. No one wants to drop points at home, and with tasty rewards to earn, you won't be missing out. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus. Rewards registration required. Points only on menu items. Delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Hello and welcome to The Love Strangers, a Swindon Town fan podcast proudly sponsored by the STFC Official Supporters Club. Rogers is streaking ahead and he's onside. I will win this league anyway. Richard, he's hit it. It's Crabbler! strangers podcasts something slightly different this week now nowadays of course it's nothing out of the ordinary for a football team to feature a number of black footballers and over the years at Swindon there have been many who've entered the hearts of our fan base for their exploits in a town shirt but it hasn't always been that way and every journey has to start with a first step and in this case a first player This season, there has been a lot of discussion about players taking the knee in support of national and global anti-racism campaigns. And with all of this being such a present topic today, we are excited to be joined by the authors of a recently released book, Football's Black Pioneers, the stories of the first black player to represent each of the 92 league clubs. Namely, these authors are Bill Hearn and David Gleave. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Hello, thank you for having us. Yep, hi there. And I'm also joined by our very own Connor Garrett. Hello, Connor. Yeah, hi, I'm, I'm glad to be invited as well. Um, can't shake me off, Rich. <laughs> <laughs> Never want to. Okay, chaps, as you know, you're on a Swindon Town podcast right now, so I'm going to be nosy. I want to know who you guys support. So, Bill, who's your team? My team is Sunderland. So um, I was at the playoffs when you beat us uh, and, and then lost your promotion slot. Um, but yeah, I've been to the county ground. Uh, so, so, so you beat us 5-3 once. Um, and it should oh, have been yes. about 10-0. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would have been about 91-92 season, I imagine. I would around guess about. so, yeah. Yeah, yeah and, then, uh, and then, of course, how did, how did the Sunderland, thing, the Wembley final, make you feel at the time? Just out of interest. Well, we we sort of deserved to lose. I mean, you you could have won by a lot, a lot, a lot more. So I just took it on the chin, really. And uh, you know, the fact that we were later promoted because of your misfortune, um, you know, was was okay. But I was happier because of course Newcastle the slot. They they thought they should have got it because they finished fourth. Um, but obviously the, right. the football league decided that the runners up in the playoffs should get it. 
didn't do us much good. I think we came down the next season, but uh, <laughs> not to worry. We're used to that. Tyneweir Derby in the playoffs. What a moment that would have been in modern times. David, who's your team? Uh, Crystal Palace, <clears throat> I support. Uh, I've seen Palace play Swindon many times. Well, they've never been to the county ground, so they've always been at Sellers Park. Uh, I think my fondest Swindon-related memory would be Don Rogers, who obviously I think we signed from Swindon, cool. if I remember rightly. And what a player Don Rogers was. I, I enjoyed many an afternoon watching him. And famous for destroying Manchester United, wasn't he, yeah. in a Palace yeah. shirt? Absolutely lovely. One of my favourite games. I was there and it was uh, it was a great to witness it. Fantastic. Okay, so let's get to the question at hand. And Connor, I'm going to allow you to kick off. Yeah, primed and ready. Uh, so obviously we, we know now that you're you're both football fans, but aside from that, what was sort of your main inspiration behind sort of the idea for writing the book? Um, I mean, Bill and I have known each other through work for, for many years. Um, and when we retired in around about 2015-16 um, we got involved in working on a project to do with uh, black soldiers in World War One, uh, who served in the British Army during World War One, um, and that was coming towards an end in the autumn of 2016 um, and Bill approached me and said he'd had an idea um, about identifying and then writing about the first black player at each of the 92 football league clubs um, uh, so my immediate reaction to that was that I, I thought it was a great idea, um, but I also thought it was going to be a huge amount of work. Um, and I think I was right on both counts. I mean, I still think it was a great idea. I'm really glad we did it. Um, but it definitely was uh, you know, a lot of hard work. It t- it's been four years in the making of this book. We started in the autumn of 2016, and it was almost four years to the day when it was actually published. Um, but I'm really quite proud of what we've produced. I think it's a worthwhile book. And Obviously, in the four years we were working on it, it became more and more relevant and sad in a way that it should become so relevant. I mean, in a way, I'd rather it, it wasn't relevant, but you know, it's relevant for all the wrong reasons. I think you know, there, there is so much going on about uh, you know, the abuse of black footballers and racism in the game and in society at general. So it, it's good to remind people, I think that uh, you know, the history of black footballers goes back a long way and is worth celebrating. Yeah, I, I remember you know, around the, the 100th anniversary of the end of the First World War, there was a lot of Walter Tall stuff, wasn't there, um, yeah. in, in the media. And I remember reading a lot of stuff on that. And the thing that I vividly remember from it wasn't necessarily his, his exploits, you know, essentially as a war hero, but it was... The, the description of the of the contemporary press at the time talking about like the abuse he got especially there was one at Bristol City wasn't there yeah um yeah. where you just and it just sort of blows your mind how these guys you know how they were treated for doing something that was no different than what everybody else was doing I, mean, I think that was quite routine in those days I mean uh, Walter may have suffered more more than some but I mean the use of the term darky was I think you know, just pretty routine in press reports of matches at that time. Um, Walter, interestingly, wasn't the only person to serve, the only footballer to serve in World War One. because I think during our research, we established that one of Bill's favourite players, uh, after his career was over, also served in World, World War One, and that was Willie Clark, who I'm sure Bill will talk about in a moment. But, I mean, Willie had retired, I think, a couple of years before the war broke out, uh, and we've established that he signed up with the Middlesex Regiment uh, and was in France very early in 1914 um, and that he later su- switched to the Royal Engineers. But he survived the war and we haven't been able to find out very much about his actual war record apart from you know which regiments he served in. But I, Bill has established, uh, you know, managed to find out a great deal about his football record um, and I'm sure he'd love to talk about it. Yeah, I mean, I think the reason I've got a soft spot for Willie Clark is that he was the, I think, the third black player to play in English football, in, in the Football League. But he was the first player to score a goal in, in the Football League. And that's a pretty a momentous achievement, really. He scored it for Aston Villa, and at that stage, Aston Villa were probably the best team in the world. So he was clearly a good footballer. Uh, scored it on Christmas Day, when he used to play football on Christmas Day. Uh, at Everton, at Goodison Park. And Villa won 3-2. It was the top of the table clash. The weather was dreadful. There were no floodlights. It was getting dark. They didn't know if the game would finish or not. Um, so Willie, I think, goes in the record books, not just for being an excellent footballer, but for scoring the, the very first goal by a black player in, in the English Football League. He went on to play for Bradford City. 
Uh, he scored the first ever goal in the top division for Bradford City. Uh, never, never quite got a Scottish cap. He was a Scot, as many of the players were in those days. Um, went to Lincoln, where oddly enough he wasn't the first black player at Lincoln. He, he was the second. Uh, he'd been beaten by a Scot um, called uh, John Walker, and John Walker's a very sad story. He um, he died within a year of making his debut for Lincoln. He died of tuberculosis, which obviously was very common at uh, you know just the turn of the nineteenth and twentieth centuries. Uh, but yeah, Willie Clark is a bit of a favourite of mine. In, we'll stick with you, Bill, for the next question because you know the football league, eighteen eighty eight, is a long time ago, and the size of football clubs and their press attention it differs across the board. So, how did you guys begin researching the book and gathering all the information and making sure it was reliable and that some of these guys were indeed the first black players for their respective clubs? Yeah, that's a very good point because there's a lot of misinformation out there. Uh, and we did find some of the sort of claims weren't justified. I mean, for example, the um, the first black player, Crew Alexander, a guy called Cecil Peter Baines, he was said to be the first Australian, black Australian to play in England. Um, but we we established he'd never been in Australia in his life. He was um, a bit of a, a bit of a lad, I think you would say. Uh, he spent time in jail, as did his father. Um, but he, he'd never set foot in Australia. Um, I think David mentioned routinely describing people as darkies in, in those days um, in, in a, a bad way that actually helped us because old press reports would reveal the colour of a player, you know, so it would say that Darkie Clark scored in the, in the 32nd minute. That causes you to look a bit deeper at Darkie Clark because it doesn't mean that he was actually... Um, black, he could have just been swarthy or, or, or whatever. Um, so, you know, all, all press reports are really, really useful. Um, Leeds United, for example, if we'd gone to Leeds, Leeds might have said, oh, Albert Johansson was our first black player. But when we dig a bit deeper, he wasn't. It was a player called Jerry Francis who beat Albert by uh, you know a few years. So we, um, we used newspapers, we used archives. We've got more birth, marriage and death certificates than you can you know, shake a stick at it's uh we spent a fortune on those. Um books, lots of books around, club historians. Uh generally speaking, we didn't get a lot of cooperation from clubs. I mean they weren't obstructive, they just didn't reply to queries. Uh fans forums were excellent, absolutely brilliant. Uh, you know, fans always want to talk about football, don't they? So we asked them the question, who was your first black player? You get a whole variety of answers, some of them quite comical some of them way off the mark, but eventually we get there. Um, so, you know, the book's been out now since August and we haven't had anyone said any of them are wrong. Um, when we were doing the research, some people did say, we think we had a Nigerian full back in 1920. And sometimes when you, when you dig into that, you find that perhaps they did sign one on trial, but never actually made the first team. But we think we've, uh, we think we've got it right, hopefully. But if we haven't, we're happy to, look at alternatives yes yeah i mean it's interesting you say that because swindon town are one of those teams in a way because in the 50s we had a nigerian footballer contracted called titus O'Care, but he only That's played right. in the combination so he he didn't make a senior appearance which obviously is the main criteria um david do you have anything to add on to onto that no i mean i i i would agree that Fans forums were helpful. I mean, I think the fans forums at Rochdale helped me avoid a mistake because I was following the career of a player called Tony Collins, who was the first black player at several clubs, including Crystal Palace, which is why I started uh, sort of tracking his career. Uh, and after Palace, he moved to Rochdale, which was his last club before he retired. Uh, and I sort of went to Rochdale fairly certain that Tony Collins would be their first black player. This was in 1950, uh, 1960. Um, and there wouldn't, hadn't been that many black players playing football league before that. Um, but I went to their forum on a bit of a hunchery and I just said, who was your first black player? And for a while, people said, yeah, Tony Collins. But then suddenly a couple of old heads popped up and said, oh, no, no, we had a black player called Calvin Simons who played for us in, I think it was 1955. Uh, and when you dig into Calvin Simons sort of story you find out that they're absolutely right so uh, a fans forum in that particular case saved us from making what would have been an embarrassing mistake I, I think I mean Calvin Simons as it turned out only played one game for Rochdale away at Barrow which is 
hardly the most romantic of uh, sort of football careers. Um, but nonetheless, you only have to play one game to be a first black player. So um, I would echo the fact that fans forums were helpful. Are there any were there any clubs where it was really, really hard to sort of track someone down other than uh, potentially uh, ones that have already been mentioned? I think perhaps the most difficult ones, I don't know if you agree, David, some of the earlier ones, there was some debate whether they were actually black or not. And Chris Kamara enters into that in, in, in an indirect way because um, we think Brentford's first black player was a um, a guy called Corbett, Fred Corbett. Um, but there's some doubt whether he was black or not. We think he was, and that, that's our view. Um, but if he wasn't, that would make Chris Kamara the first black player at Brentford as well as Swindon. Um, Fred Corbett was the first black player at West Ham as well. Um, and again, if, if he wasn't black, then a player called John Charles would have been the first black player for West Ham. But what John Charles has definitely done, John Charles was definitely the first black player to represent England at any level in 1962. And he very rarely gets a mention um, but he has, uh, he, he's, he's deceased now, unfortunately, but um, he was most certainly England's first black player at any level, at youth level. Um, yeah, I think Fred Corbett was the one that perhaps caused us the most angst. Certainly I've got lots and lots of birth certificates for Fred Corbett, Fred Corbett's parents, Fred Corbett's grandparents, desperately trying to find some sort of link to, for instance, the Caribbean. Um but there isn't any genealogical evidence, if you like, to support the fact that he was black. So the, the only evidence there is really is team photos. And um, I think we've got three or four team photos of Fred Corbett. And you know, if you looked at one photo, you could say, well, it was just, just a dodgy picture. And you know, interpreting black and white photos from the 1890s is at best a bit hit and miss. But the thing is, I, mean, I think in every single team photo that we've seen of Fred Corbett, he looks darker than his teammates. Not, not not, what you would call black black, but nonetheless, he does look darker than his teammates. And I think on that basis, we've, we've suggested that we think Fred Corbett was the first black player at the clubs uh, that Bill's mentioned. And also, I think Bristol City was another. Um, and there is, there is debate about Fred Corbett. I mean, I think the West Ham club historian favours the case of John Charles. Uh, but the Brentford... Uh, club historian told us that he agreed that in his view Fred Corbett was black so Fred uh, and there's a writer called Phil Vassler who's done quite a lot of work in this area who also said that it was possible possibly was possibly it wasn't I think all we can do is we say we think on the basis of the photographic evidence Fred Corbett was probably black but there might well be people who would turn around and say well he wasn't and as Bill said we've tried where possible to identify the second black player at that particular club and Dave did any names keep appearing in your research which you just had to find more about, even if they weren't the first player to appear for their club? Um, 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 You've got Clyde Best, perhaps. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Clyde Best. OK. I, I mean, I think every West Ham fan would remember Clyde Best. I certainly saw Clyde Best playing. I think he's well known because he was one of the very few black players in an era when football started to appear on television and so he he was somebody who people would have seen on a relatively regular basis on television and he suffered the most horrendous abuse I mean he really did um so he, he was a name that yeah I think Bill and I had a had an event that we sort of hosted uh, only a few weeks ago and we had somebody on the on the line from Bermuda who said um oh you're not talking about Clyde Best. Why aren't you talking about Clyde Best? He was the first black player at West Ham. And we had to explain, well, we don't think Clyde Best was... Well, Clyde Best definitely wasn't the first black player at West Ham. Um, but he is a name that crops up. As Bill mentioned, Albert Johansson's name would crop up, I think, if you spoke to players, uh, spoke to people connected with Leeds. Um, so there are these misconceptions about who the first black player was. And Clyde Best um, is one name that would crop up, um, uh, you know, very important to discuss Clyde Best because his, the, ex the experiences he had were pretty horrific and, you know, they shouldn't be forgotten. But nonetheless, he was not West Ham's first black player by any any stretch, really. Clyde Best is still alive and living well in uh, living living in Bermuda, as is Calvin Simons, who I mentioned earlier. Uh, Calvin's a lot older. Uh, Calvin, I think, is uh, 93 now. I've spoken to him over the phone. Lovely chap. Uh, Bill, were there any uh, that sort of you had to have a look at, even if they weren't included in the book? Well, I mean, certainly Albert Johansson was the main one. I don't think any Leeds fan would expect to read a, a Leeds chapter and not see Albert in there. 
And we also got a lot of cooperation from Albert's daughters as well. Um, so we, we did feature Albert quite a lot. Um, Cyril Regis is a player that falls into this sort of Clyde Best category. Um, you know, legend as a footballer, but not the first black player at West Brom. He was, um, Laurie Cunningham was the first black player at West Brom. So, um, but yeah, probably, probably Johansson was the, the main one. Also, perhaps in terms of sort of identifying people, I, th- I think Manchester United were a little bit of a pro- problem for a while. I think in, in the end, Bill identified um, Dennis Walker as Manchester United's first black player. Indeed, Dennis Walker is was the only only black Busby Babe. But there, there were other names in the frame. Um, Whelan? Everybody thinks Tony Whelan was Man yeah. United's first black player. And uh, when I interviewed Viv Anderson, I mean, Viv was at Man United a long time. He thought Tony Whelan was the first black player as well. And yet the man who shouts from the rooftops that he wasn't the first black player was Tony Whelan. And he's always trying to give Dennis Walker the credit that he um, that he deserves. But Dennis only played one game for Manchester United in 1963. And even then it was the week before the cup final. So Matt Busby was resting people like Bobby Charlton and so on. Um, so Dennis got a game um, at Notts Forest. And uh, he, he was released at the end of that season, went on to become the first black player at Cambridge. But uh, it was after his football career that he hit the headlines again. Um, he was the the operational manager at the Arndale Centre at Manchester. And the IRA planted the, the biggest bomb that's been planted on uh, English territory since World War II. And Dennis made the decision to evacuate the building, uh, which was a very, very brave thing to do on a Saturday when the shops were full. Uh, but the bomb went off and uh, not, not a single person was killed. Dennis was thrown across the road, but uh, wasn't badly injured. So he, um, he went on to become a hero in uh, a completely different context. And these are the sort of stories we kept finding as we looked at the, the lives of, the, uh, of the, you know, the first black players. When we started, we thought, well, yeah, black player makes debut 92 times. But when we look at the individuals, each of them had a completely different story. Quite fascinating, really. 12 minutes before the break, Kamara ran onto the ball and drove a low shot past the helpless Steve Francis. What a cracker that was. Swindon's third came from this throw-in. Watch Kamara flick to Henry. He chests it down, Kamara on the rebound, bang, past Francis, who must still be muttering tonight. Where was my defence? You're listening to the Low Strangers podcast, proudly sponsored by the STFC Official Supporters Club. Come on, Swindon! <laughs> Expanding into some of those stories that you found out, were there any that really surprised you during the research of the book? Because, for example, when I was reading it, one that really sort of stuck with me was um, Jack Leslie, uh, the player that you've got in there for Plymouth, who was uh, actually called up to the England squad in the 1920s, I believe. And uh, then when they found out that he was black, he was uh, sort of taken out of the squad immediately, um, which sort of blew my mind that that was a sort of the sort of thing that happened back then but um yeah, yeah. were there any any others or i mean it just just pursue the jack leslie one i mean when i started looking at the jack leslie story i'd heard of it and i thought it was an urban myth i thought there's no way a third division player had been picked for england in 1925 and then dropped because he was black but when we did the research there's no doubt about it whatsoever um, the day after the selection committee met, the newspapers were full of it. Um, Jack Leslie was there as a one of the thir- squad of 13. He was there as a reserve. And when the team actually went to Northern Ireland to play the game, Jack was left behind, played for Plymouth. Um, I think he scored two goals against Bournemouth. Um, but there's absolutely no doubt that that story is true. And you probably know that there's a, a Jack Leslie campaign which has collected over £100,000 to uh, purchase a, a statue to be erected outside of Plymouth's ground at the earliest opportunity. So he will get his um, his recognition. But yeah, that was a that surprised me because I thought I was going to disprove the myth, and it was quite the opposite. I'm now totally converted, and uh, <laughs> want to see Jack Leslie get his um, the respect that he deserved. And the interesting thing about that story, I I I thought was. Um, th- it's, people find it hard to believe. How could the selectors select somebody and not know that he was black? And I think that that's, you know, there are two schools of thought. I know Bill 
probably subscribe to the view that the selectors did know he was black, but actually they were lent on by somebody above them who said, you can't possibly choose a black person. You know, you've got to get him out. Um, that was one school of thought. I think the other school of thought is that perhaps um, the selectors who picked him weren't aware that he was black because it was, it was all done by committee. And you can always imagine the conversation going uh, from, from the Devon representative saying, oh, I've got this player called Jack Leslie. I think he's pretty good. Why don't we pick him? Um, and so the selectors all just nodded over their gin and tonics and said, yeah, let's pick Jack Leslie. And it was only later that they were told, do, you do realise he's black. So I, I, I don't think we're ever likely to know the absolute truth of what happened there. But uh, as I say, there are two versions of that mm. possible chain of events of how that happened. But uh, as Bill says, there's absolutely no proof, that, uh, no doubt at all that it did happen. You're probably not too far short with the gin and tonic story. <laughs> Because what had happened was that was the charity shield on the, I think it was a Monday at White Hart Lane. And that season, it was the amateurs against the professionals. The amateurs won 6-0. Um, and the committee, there was a, a party that night for the to celebrate a, an FA squad that had gone to Australia in the summer. So the 14 committee members obviously couldn't wait to get away to the, the party. Probably very, very hurriedly picked the, uh, the England team. They picked four amateurs. It wasn't a strong England team because clubs didn't need to release their players in those days. So, um, I think seven of the 11 that played Northern Ireland were never never played again for England. I think five were making their debuts. And the captain was a, an amateur who never, it was the only game he ever played. He never played a football league game. Um, so it wasn't a strong side, which adds to the argument that Jack Leslie wasn't just in the squad. He would have been one of the better players. Um, but yeah, we might never know the full truth. I mean, another odd one that surprised me was um, a lesser-known player at Huddersfield. Lloyd Maitland was Huddersfield's first black player. And I noticed that his career finished at 22. And when I interviewed him, um, you know, lovely, lovely man, he explained that what had happened was in the, in the close season, him and a couple of colleagues had gone to Harrogate for a, a day out. And on the way back, the, his teammates played a prank on him. They let him get out of the car and drove off. In, in a isolated country lane. So he thought, well, what am I going to do now? And he um, thought, well, I'm going to have to just start walking. So he was walking up a hill, and as he got to the top of the hill, the car with the teammates was coming back the other way to pick him up. And it hit him, and, and it smashed both of his legs. And they bundled him into the car, took him to the local hospital, threw him out, didn't wait, drove off, and his career was finished. He, he never, ever played again. In fact... Uh, he was in pasta for, I think, 18 months. And he, he was so philosophical about it. it, was, it was, you know, there was no bitterness whatsoever. But I, I didn't expect his career to finish in, in that manner. Uh, and it's really tragic. But... Wow. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the names that's mentioned in the book that I knew of before, because when I was at university, I did my dissertation on... on immigration of footballers to the United States in in the 1920s so I see that Tufik Abdullah was was mentioned as Derby Counties and you know I think his nickname when he was uh, or it's certainly the press in America at the time were calling him Toothpick Abdullah um, but this leads on to sort of an additional question really is did you did you notice any patterns of of when black players started playing in certain areas? Because you've got some teams, huge names like Liverpool and Chelsea, who are in the latter stages of that seventies eighties wave. But then you've got other teams not so far away that filled black players decades before. Are, were there any patterns? Mm, it's difficult. I mean, it's difficult to answer that. I mean, there were there have, you have to say there are a number of. Uh, Lancashire clubs who were quite late uh, in playing a, a black player. And you've mentioned Liverpool, um, Blackburn Rovers. Um, uh, Burnley, I think, probably don't deserve to be mentioned in that uh, in that category either because they played a, a black player, uh, I think it was Les Lawrence, wasn't it, Bill? Quite a bit before um, their neighbours. So I don't think you can draw simple geographical kind of comparisons. There's, it's Chelsea are a bit odd. I mean, in London... As you might expect, London aren't too bad in terms of fielding a black player quite early. But Chelsea do stand out as a club who didn't. And not only did they not field a black player, um, they actually gave him the most torrid time. His, this is probably the, the only example that we're sure of where 
uh, players' own fans regularly and routinely booed him. Uh, Paul Canneville, we're talking about, uh, and say so he had a he had a terrible time. I mean, I, I was at the game where he made his debut. He he came on as a late sub for Chelsea against Palace, um, and you know, apparently, according to his biography, he was just as soon as he came out to warm up with a few minutes of match left to go uh, his own fans started booing him and he was obviously and understandably desperately upset by that now i was at that game and i think i think perhaps football fans you know would agree with me that you're not always aware of what's going on you're i mean i was palace were one nil down with a few minutes to go and i was concentrating on what trying to urge palace onto an equalizer i'm sure so the, the fact that the chelsea sub was warming up and down warming up on the sidelines probably would have escaped my attention the fact that he was being booed by his own fans even if i'd noticed i probably wouldn't have quite understood what was going on but i mean bill and i were in a pub uh, you know a few months ago when we were allowed to do that kind of thing with a chelsea fan who said he was also at that game and he was so appalled by the behavior of his fellow chelsea fans that he he walked out um, he couldn't he couldn't bear to be in the ground with them. So uh, Paul Paul Cannaval is an interesting story. And as I say, Chelsea are unusual as a London club in that respect. I mean, most other clubs certainly did quite a bit better than that. I mean, there were some odd things in that York City had four black players by the ooh, late 1960s, and most teams hadn't had a, a single black player. Birmingham City, with the, the ethnic mix that that city has, I think it was 112 years before they played a, a single black player. Um, if you're looking at geography, certainly Lancashire were very, very slow in um, in selecting black players. But even that might disguise some truth. Um, I mean, Blackburn were the, the last of the big sides to play a black player uh, in, the, in the 1980s. And Burnley weren't very far behind. But in fairness to Burnley, they signed a black player in 1933 who didn't make the first team, but they sold him to Southampton and he became Southampton's first black player. So it's dangerous to jump to the possible assumption that you know Lancashire weren't keen on black footballers um, when the stories like the Burnley one. And of course, when you look at cricket in the Lancashire League and, and even rugby league, uh, there were lots of black players there then. So it's, it's hard to establish a, a, a real pattern. Lincoln City, for example, you know they had two black players before probably 90 clubs had any, uh, but you wouldn't expect that. Hereford, I mean, not not in the league anymore, and, and Bury as well. Hereford and Bury had about six of the first black players had, had played for them at some stage in their career. So it's um, it's probably no, you know, no, no hard proof uh, of geographical differences. Uh, in terms of time, the 1970s was the, um, the, the, the period that uh, most clubs played their first black player and that probably reflects society as well in terms of uh, you know black people establishing themselves in the in the country um, but up to 1945 there probably I mean certainly less than 20 clubs had played a black player up to the end of the second world war okay well talking about the 70s that takes us to Swindon town doesn't it because our first first team player who was black of course as mentioned was Chris Kamara a footballer that fans of that generation hugely loved I've said it on the podcast before my mum hates football and the only thing she looks back at watching Swindon when when she was married was my with my dad was Chris Kamara you know the Chris Kamara Chan and hugely popular two spells played more games uh, for Swindon in his career than anybody else and it was it was a good long career that ended pretty much at the top um he's amongst the most recognizable names in your book to probably the younger reader i mean for me when i was looking through you know there were a few that i recognized but of course viv anderson laurie cunningham chris kamara i would say to a modern audience a younger audience is probably the the, the big three how, how did you go about researching chris kamara's chapter Right. I mean, it's just to sort of reiterate what you said in the book, we, we do actually say he's one of the most instantly recognisable sports personalities. And he certainly is. When I interviewed him, he was being interrupted every minute or so with people wanting to shake hands. Genuinely liked him, you know, and uh, getting selfies. And Chris, you know, smiled every time he didn't mind being interrupted. It must be a funny way to lead your life. But uh, he, he was brilliant. Um, 
I mean, what I did was I, I looked at Chris's roots, really, and, and it's a fascinating story, and it just shows how small our world has become. Because back in 1838, his great-great-grandfather was a, farm, a, a poor part farmer in Ireland, and things weren't going well, so he decided to move to the northeast of England. And, um, you know, so, so basically one arm of his family is, is Irish. And when you think about that family in Ireland and, and in the early days in England, they couldn't have imagined television, football. Um, they certainly wouldn't imagine any of their relatives being wealthy. And more than anything, they wouldn't have imagined for one second that they would have a great, great grandson who would be black. Because as, as these Irish farmers are moving across, there's a Sierra Leone in, uh, his dad was from Sierra Leone. Um, you know, it, probably an enslaved person, in, in, in historically, not, not his dad, of course. Um, so, you know, there were two sort of complete diff different cultures got together in Middlesbrough, of all places, uh, where Chris's mum married uh, his dad, Albert. They had three children. Chris was born on Christmas Day, 1957. And I was able to give him all this sort of background to his family, you know, where they lived, where they worked. His great-grandfather was a labourer when he was 13. And Chris's son had done a little bit of research, so it wasn't all completely new to him. But a lot of the players really, really got excited when I was able to explain to them their background. I mean, Neville Chamberlain at, um, of, of the Chamberlain dynasty, really, you know, Alex Oxley, Chamberlain, Mark Chamberlain, uh, they had no idea of, of their roots that, that went back to um, a sugar plantation in, in Jamaica. Um, so, you know, we, we did research on Chris's um, background on his family. Um, we, we read his book. He's got an excellent book, um, Unbel Mr. Unbelievable. And we interviewed him. And he had a tough, really tough childhood in Middlesbrough. There weren't many black people in Middlesbrough. There weren't many mixed marriages. Um, they were very poor. They had no money at all. Um, they didn't have a fridge. Uh, it was really, really tough. And, um, you know, his dad told him to ignore racism. You know, just, just keep your head down. Don't, uh, don't get involved. So he had a very, very tough childhood. He joined the Navy on, on his dad's advice. Um, but then he was so good at football, he was always going to get noticed. And Portsmouth signed him. And he had a, a couple of seasons at Portsmouth. And then the... The big move for him in August 77, he signed for Swindon. <laughs> uh, the, the massive fee, you see different amounts reported, but I'm told it's 14,000. And um, what, 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 yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, you, you sold him for 50,000 later. So, what, what, a, you know, you, you got sort of three and a half seasons out of him and then made a, a big profit. But um, what was interesting was Chris had no idea he was the first black player at Swindon. And uh, when I interviewed him, he brought along a scrapbook. And when we opened it, the, the very first thing was the, the Swindon newspaper talking about um, Swindon have signed a, in, in those days, the language was coloured, you know, would, would signed a coloured player. Um, so certainly the, the, the newspaper was conscious that something uh, had happened. And he, he just got better and better. I mean, his debut was in a League Cup game at Swansea, which he won 3-1. And his first league game was at Sheffield Wednesday, 20th of August, 77. And he scored. You know, so what, what better way to, uh, to start your career? Um, and, and as you see, I mean, in his first spell, he played 133, well, nearly 150 games. And uh, came back and played another 150 or so. So, yeah, real, really good servant. I mean, I think possibly that, you can correct me here, but I would imagine the height of his first spell would have been the League Cup when you beat Arsenal in the quarterfinal and then only just lost to Wolves in the semi in 79. Right. Yeah. Uh, and just to show what Chris was like, I mean, it was very, very rare in the early days to have a black person as a captain. It's almost echoes of there couldn't be black officers in, 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 uh, in World War One, which is why Walter Tull is so famous. Um, Jack Leslie Odenough was the very first black captain. And after that, you've got to come up to about 1969 with Stan Horn who captained Fulham. But Chris was captain, not, you know, he was black, but he, he was only 22 as well, so he clearly, a, you know, a great leader. Um, but he, um, he went off to Portsmouth for £50,000. Portsmouth, uh, well, the Portsmouth fans detested him when he joined Swindon. 
and he needed police protection when he went back to Portsmouth to play for Swindon. Um, but typical fickle football fans, um, you know, he, he went back to Portsmouth and suddenly his colour wasn't an issue. And I found that at Millwall, many, many players I interviewed said Millwall was the most racist ground they ever went to. But there's no evidence that they ever booed their own black players. Um, the only place that that happened to a great degree was actually Chelsea, where Paul Cannaville was famously booed by his own fans. And they even created league tables deducting any goals that he'd scored. Um, and, and Paul Cannaville went through, you know, it was, it was bad, it was nasty. Um, and, he, you know, he did well to emerge from it. He's, he's doing great stuff now in, um, in sort of helping youths and, and so on. Um, but, yeah, um, I mean, Chris's second period with you, it ended quite quite badly, didn't it, with the Jim Jim Melrose incident, which Chris doesn't really like to talk about. Um, I mean, but but it does bring out how black people were treated in those days, because Lou Macari, and, and I'm not saying Lou Macari was any different from the other 91 managers, he basically said, look, Chris is black, he's going to get that sort of abuse, he's got to put up with it, it's water off a duck's back. Now, nowadays... Chris and the teammates could walk off and I think they'd get supported. Uh, and, I, and I asked Viv Anderson, what would have happened you know, in your early days if you'd walked off? And he said, Bill, if I'd walked off, I would have been signing on at the job centre the following Monday. You know, I wouldn't have got any support whatsoever. So I think um, things have looked up. I mean, Chris told me a couple of examples where he was, um, when he was manager, and obviously on the touchline, you're going to hear the abuse popped out a little bit more. And at Oxford, somebody called him a, a black so-and-so. And, and the guy got ejected. Port Vale, the same thing happened. And uh, after half an hour, Chris looked around and, and the bloke was back in. He'd been ejected and, and they'd let him back in. So Chris complained to the police and they said, but he said you started it. And you could almost see Chris's eyes, even now, what, 20, 30 years later, the unfairness of it that... Uh, that bloke could get away with saying what he did say. But, um, but yeah, I mean, he must be one of your best ever players, I guess. Would you, would you think so? Yeah, um, certainly. I mean, having not seen him play for Swindon, you know, I can only go with, you know, what you know, my family have said and what fellow Swindon fans have said. And the, the, the level of fondness that people talk of Chris Kamara um, within the Swindon town fan base is, is absolutely significant and you know I, I have plenty of footballers come on this podcast old and new and you sort of talk to them about their careers and of course nine times out of ten they talk about how fondly um, they think of Swindon and regard Swindon due to their career some not so much um, but that makes it just as interesting and I imagine if I had Chris Kamara on this podcast he'd say how fond he was at Swindon but you guys you've got you know no association with the club. How how did he talk of Swindon um, during your your conversations with him? Well, he was clearly very very fond of Swindon. I mean, it was an important time in his life, really, his second club, and probably his first, you know, first sort of pay increase, really, because I think when he signed for Portsmouth, he was only eight pound a week. So Swindon was a step up. I think he was fairly newly married, you know, so it was probably creating a, a, a new sort of a house and stuff like that. So, yeah, I think he'll always have a very, very special place in his heart. Um, but to be fair, I mean, he, he's such a um, ebullient sort of person. He, even when he was talking about Portsmouth, which had a huge national front presence and, um, you know, where he took a lot of stick when he went back with other teams, he, he, he didn't sort of slag them off or anything. So he's just a really upbeat guy. But clearly Swindon was an important part in his career. And I think yeah. he was sad to leave. I, I'm, my guess is he wouldn't have left had it not been for the perhaps the lack of support he got on the on the Melrose incident. He didn't say that, that's just my my, uh, my surmising. But he um, he could have signed a new contract at the end of that season, but elected to join Stoke instead. So um, I think possibly, you know, he, he, he probably went partly reluctantly, but I think he might have been a little bit hurt. Reflecting on the wide, wider situation, which lessons or messages can we take from the struggles that many of the players in the book went through in the fight against racism today. Yeah, I mean, it's, 
I think I think the biggest lesson really is that in the seventies, black players were told that racism is just a fact of life. Get on with it, and and that was their view as well. I mean, a lot of them simply say, "Look, I either didn't hear the racism, I was just focused, or I did hear the racism, but I wasn't going to let it beat me because all I wanted to do was play football." So, but but that's wrong. I mean, you you shouldn't be you shouldn't have to accept a wrong just because it's a it's a way of life. Um, so I think that the biggest lesson is that we, we need to support these people. And um, I think we've got that now. I think stewarding's improved. So I don't think there should be the abuse that the people might have got worth in the past. If things get really, really bad, teams can walk off and get supported. So I think um, the lesson really is just don't go back to the, the old days where racism was just an accepted, you know, a given um, because it must never be. Um, in, in terms of management, um, I mean, people forget Chris Kamara was a, he got off to a brilliant start in his managerial career. He took over Bradford City with the remit to keep the club in the, what, what's now League One, it was then Division Two, I think. And he failed, but he failed in a good way. He actually got them promoted, even though the ambition was only not to get relegated. So that was one heck of an achievement for him as a as a young manager in his first job. Um, he inevitably, like all managers, you know, he went through a bad patch. He got sacked, and he managed Stoke City after that. And and fair enough, that 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 was a disaster. But um, you know, Chris was a a decent manager at a time when there were hardly any black managers. Uh, Viv Anderson, who wrote the forward for the book, he was manager at Barnsley in nineteen ninety three. And there were only two black managers in the football league at the time, and he honestly thought in 1993 this is the start of the of the change. We're going to get more black managers, but we're not really what 27 years later, we're not really that far advanced. And the black players I interviewed had all sorts of theories as to why why that was. Um, some like Neville Chamberlain said it's because we were too easily defeated. You know, we think it's not worth applying because we won't get the job. Um, Viv Anderson was almost tearing his hair out with, with frustration. He said there are so many brilliant black coaches and ex-black players who want to contribute, but they can't get a job. And then there were others that said clubs are run by white people. And, you know, until, until we get a black owner, uh, it's going to be very, very difficult. How many Russians know many black people? So, you know, they, they talk about upstairs. Things have got to change upstairs. And directors are more likely to select a, a, a failed white manager. I'm not going to name any because Sunderland have had most of them. But, um, you know, they'd rather appoint a failed white manager than uh, take a chance on a on a black manager. So, you know, things have got to... I think things have got to change. Logically, they've got to change. I mean, you can't have such a percentage of black players and then suddenly have that complete mismatch when it gets to managerial level. It doesn't make sense, does it? It's not logical. Yeah, it's, it's one of the, the threads that sort of is picked up throughout the book as well with uh, sort of a lot of the, the theories that obviously in the interviews you've done with players that, that that's come across. And I think you mentioned it at one point that sort of most of the players that you interviewed sort of had, had their own sort of thoughts on yeah. um, why there was such a difficulty in sort of accessing those roles and uh, why, uh, yeah, for whatever reason, sort of black players don't have the opportunities to become um, managers, which... It seems obviously. I mean, even if you look at sort of a lot of the sort of recently retired players, some of the some of the really top quality players um, from I know the England team of the last decade, um, the, the levels that they've had to go into management has, has varied completely um, as well. It is amazing how sort of um, yeah different sort of those opportunities seem to be just based on sort of you know a few different factors. I mean, going back a little while. Um, you probably remember when well, you might remember Ron Nords who was chairman at Crystal Palace and he, he was a man of his time I suppose and he had a theory that black players are all very well but you know they've got no resilience they're not that bright um, and yet when we when we look at the players in, in football's black pioneers the numbers like Chris Kamara who played you know sort of nearly 800 games we've got players made 700 600 Viv Anderson made 700 games and, and a lot of our players in, in the book are playing in the lower leagues. It was 1990 before Chris got into the first division. He had 15 years in the lower leagues. 
probably getting kicked to bits, you know, where, where you could tackle from behind and all sorts. So um, there was this sort of misconception that black players weren't as strong as white players. And it, even going back to, I think, 1977, a very famous journalist called Bernard Joy said that it's unlikely that we'll have a, have a, ever have a black player play for England because uh, there's so many things against them. They don't like the playing conditions. They haven't got the temperament. They haven't got the resilience. Um, they can't take the barricade. Uh, you know, it's just, just stereotype, really. And yet within a, a year, Viv Anderson played, then Laurie Cunningham. And I think it was October, England played their 100th black player in, in, in the full international team. So, you know, it's uh, some strange attitudes in the in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, but the fact that those sort of things were said back then and then you see how far we've come in terms of playing side of things, hopefully in, you know, 20, 30 years, maybe a little bit longer after that, then maybe there'll be sort of some kind of spiritual successor to this book, but from a managerial perspective rather than on the playing pitch. Yeah, I, I hope so. And uh, as I say, I think it's, it's merely logical, isn't it? That the, the progression from playing to management should be similar no matter what colour the skin of the of the player. Well, that's almost all we've got. Unfortunately, we lost David to connection issues um, during that episode, but fantastic insight by both yourself and David during this really interested listening to it um where can people get this book well the um i mean certainly the the, the easiest way would be to get it from amazon or online from amazon uh but you can get it from a publisher our publisher is conquer editions that's c-o-n-k-e-r conquer editions um waterstones any good bookshop uh but i hope people will buy it and uh hopefully enjoy it we're getting lots of good reviews and uh we enjoyed writing it and we hope people enjoy reading it bill thank you very much okay and good luck for the rest of the season the low strangers is a swindon town podcast proudly sponsored by the STFC Official Supporters Club. The music was created by the great Matthew Kilford and the artwork was designed expertly by Matt in Singapore. Thanks for listening. Come on, Swindon! <laughs> Hi, Alice Pod fans, it's JR here. If Swindon players were McDonald's items, who would they be? We've had lots of Big Macs, like the legendary Alan McLaughlin, Harry McCurdy... Or even Steve McMahon. Perhaps you'd prefer to channel the power of McPlant like Darren Ward. Or maybe five chicken selects, one to enjoy for each time Ben Gladwin joined. Yep, there's one spare, but there's still time. And you don't need super scouts or data solutions to get your hands on any of these. McDelivery through the McDonald's app brings them all to you. At participating restaurants, 18 plus. Serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable! <laughs> Just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely and control vehicle at all times.